There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. Cold Case is an unsolved criminal investigation which remains open pending the discovery of new evidence. The case goes cold once investigators have effectively turned over every rock and chased every lead to no avail. Canada is no stranger to cold cases, and an entire podcast could be devoted to exploring the numerous cold cases throughout Canadian history. But some cold cases just stand out, one in particular. Yet it is one that seemed to be nearly forgotten about within Canadian lore. This was the crash of Canadian Pacific Flight 21 back in 1965. The small community of 100 Mile House and the surrounding villages in the Caribou region of British Columbia found their July sky lit up with a massive explosion and a plane crash that killed 52 people. The cause of the crash was clear. A bomb had been detonated while the plane was in midair, sending it spiraling to the earth. Despite extensive investigation by police and transport authority, however, they were never able to solve who did it. And despite attempts by grieving family, curious journalists, and police to shed new light on the crime, only questions still remain as to who detonated a bomb on that plane on that day. This is Season 6, Episode 1, Chaos in the Caribou Sky, the crash of Canadian Pacific Flight 21. For today's book recommendation, I don't have one, because frankly, there has been very little written, especially in book form, on this specific topic. So instead, I'll actually recommend another podcast for those who want to spend even more time on this subject. You see, the CBC has a podcast called Uncover. 
and its second season back in 2018-2019 was focused on this incredible mystery and is worth checking out. Okay, it was an average summer day, 8 July 1965, when Tom and Dorothy Covello were boarding Canadian Pacific Flight 21 in Vancouver. The Covellos were planning to get off in Prince George to attend the funeral of a relative in Vanderhoof who had been recently killed in a construction accident. Tom and Dorothy had decided to leave their two boys back home in Vancouver to spare them the long trip. Wallace Brooks Emo was a 33-year-old geologist from Montreal who was heading north to Whitehorse for work. His family, a wife and three children under seven, were back in Montreal awaiting his eventual return home. Captain John Steele, Jack, to his friends, was a World War II veteran, longtime pilot, and resident of North Vancouver. Stewardess Marlene Brower was a 20-year-old German who had recently moved to Canada. Mr. and Mrs. Angelo Pigatti were flying north with their new infant daughter. All these names, part of a passenger list of 46 people, including four children, plus the six crew, made up the 52 persons aboard the Douglas DC-6B aircraft, nicknamed the Empress of Buenos Aires. The plane was flying out of Vancouver, and its ultimate destination was Whitehorse, but was going to stop at several northern cities along the way. At 2.42 p.m., the plane took off, and by 3.30, the pilots reported that they had passed over the small village of Ashcroft, British Columbia, flying at about 16,000 feet. At 3.40 p.m., the plane was above Williams Lake, which is the second largest city in the British Columbia region known as the Caribou. At about that time, air traffic control back in Vancouver received three staccato calls for Mayday from the pilot, and then the plane disappeared from the radar. An explosion in the rear lavatory had ripped open the plane. Its tail separated from the fuselage, and the main part of the plane went into a nosedive, crashing into cattle country west of the small town of Hundred Mile House. The tail was found half a kilometer away. No one on board survived. Numerous people throughout the area saw the plane come down in a hurtling mess, and locals arrived on the scene within minutes to find a flaming inferno, bodies scattered everywhere. For three days, teams searched for the bodies, trying to recover all 52 persons that were on board CP-21. It began raining shortly after the crash and remained raining for the days, and as one first responder noted, it helped wash away what otherwise would have been an even more gory scene. Some bodies discovered were burnt beyond recognition. 
Others were easily recognized. Some took days to find because they had been thrown kilometers from the crash site, and others were found quickly, hanging in trees, above where the plane had finally rested. Like all plane crashes, an investigation into the cause began immediately, and very quickly, foul play was discovered. Traces of potassium nitrate and carbon were found, or as the coroner's inquest stated, and I quote, an explosive substance foreign to the normal contents of the aircraft. CP-21 was brought down by sabotage. The people on board the plane had been murdered. But identifying the reason the plane went down was the easy part. Now came the hard part. Who planted the bomb? Folks, before we continue, I just want to take a second to let you know that we rely heavily on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So if you want to donate two bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up. We survive exclusively on your donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, and on Apple Podcast, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you, so please don't be shy, and thank you to all who have donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Investigators quickly concluded that the bomb must have been brought on board by one of the passengers because there was no evidence of a timing device being used. This meant that someone had to have manually detonated the bomb. There were a couple of red flags that investigators searched for. Any person with experience handling explosive material. Any person with a violent past. Anybody who fit the psychological profile of a mass murderer. And any person who had unusually high life insurance policies or life insurance recently taken out. Within two weeks, investigators had narrowed it down to four suspects, four men who each had characteristics that could point to them as the culprit. The first suspect was a man named Douglas Edgar. Edgar was from Surrey, British Columbia, 40 years old, with a wife and a daughter. He was described as a fairly easygoing guy who worked a number of odd jobs but also brought in an income as a gambler. By all accounts, Edgar was a pretty good person, yet his presence on CP-21 was a bit suspicious. Edgar had told his wife he was flying to Prince George for a job at a nearby mill, but the RCMP found no record of any job waiting for him. As well, Edgar took almost no clothes with him on the flight, something quite unusual considering the colder weather of the caribou. What was even more suspicious, though, was that Edgar purchased life insurance at the airport moments before boarding the plane. Were Edgar to die, 
his family would receive $125,000. Now, while today we might find this purchase of insurance at an airport rather odd, it wasn't that unusual for the time. Ticket agents would often offer life insurance to passengers, and even vending machines in airports would offer quick insurance purchases. So for 1965, Edgar's purchase of life insurance was certainly eyebrow-raising, but not the smoking gun pointing towards him as the culprit. Investigators were also quick to look into his gambling lifestyle. And while they found that he potentially owed some money to a variety of people, it was never more than a few hundred bucks, at most $1,000. Investigators concluded that Edgar was not in any serious financial trouble, was not being pressured to pay back any debts, and had no gambling issues that warranted a mass murder-suicide. Edgar's daughter, in fact, suggests that her father traveled light to Prince George because he wasn't necessarily going to be working in the mills or the camps, but playing cards in them. You see, at nighttime, card games were a constant feature of life in these sort of lumber camps and often included large amounts of cash. Whatever his motivation for flying north and whatever his motivation for purchasing life insurance, in the end, investigators could not connect him in any tangible way to the bomb. His family did eventually receive the life insurance payout, but only after years of fighting the insurance company for it. The death of Edgar, and then the process of fighting for life insurance, took a heavy toll on the family, and in particular, Edgar's wife. The next suspect on the list was Stefan Kolichar, a Ukrainian immigrant and father of five. Kolichar was a blasting expert, what they used to call a powder man, with extensive experience using explosive chemicals. Kolichar was on his way to Prince George to work on a rock excavating project. He was described by fellow workers as an extremely careful man, a good worker, with extensive knowledge of explosives. He was also known for a hot temper. In fact, what further brought him to the attention of the authorities was his criminal record. Kolachar was a fairly large man and had been known to get into fights, especially when he was called a bohunk, which is a derogatory term for Ukrainians. In one such fight, he had thrown a man down a set of stairs, and that man eventually died. While the charge was downgraded to manslaughter, investigators wondered if Kolachar's hot temper had anything to do with a possible connection to the terrible crime. However, most agree that Kolachar is the least likely of suspects. His age, his family status... His respect amongst co-workers all indicate he was just another victim of this horrific act. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The third suspect was also a person familiar with explosives and is perhaps one of the more mysterious suspects in the whole investigation. Peter Broughton was a single male, 29 years old. While socially he was considered quite a loner, he had a very strong relationship with his family, including his two brothers and one sister. He had friends, though was known to prefer to be alone more often than not. At the time, Broughton was going to night school with an eye towards a career in aviation or electronics. He was, in fact, working in northern British Columbia in the town of Cassiar, where he was monitoring machinery. What first brought Broughton to the attention of the RCMP was the fact that he had some skill with gunpowder. You see, one of his favorite hobbies was guns. He owned a number of firearms, enjoyed making his own ammunition, which of course included handling gunpowder, and was a member of a gun club in Cassiar. When looking further into Broughton, however, more red flags appeared. While Broughton had been in Vancouver he had checked out a book at the local library. This book happened to be on Douglas Airliners, the very type of plane that was CP-21. As well, the RCMP recovered several cans of gunpowder from his mother's home in Vancouver, where he was staying, though none of the gunpowder was believed by authorities to have been the same type of gunpowder used in the bomb one further red flag appeared. That was the fact that Broughton's mother reported that he had told her that there was something dangerous in his room a couple nights before the crash. While his mother later denied saying this, this piece of information remained suspicious. So the guy was a loner, could handle gunpowder, potentially had something dangerous in his room, and took out a book on Douglas airplanes. This is all quite circumstantial. The major question is, what would be his motive? One of the weaker working theories of the RCMP at the time was that he did it for fame, that he did not believe it would destroy the plane, but instead create a sensational story of which he would be a part, though there is no mention of the notoriety motive in the official RCMP reports. All of this seems rather unlikely. A more interesting and nuanced element of the RCMP investigation into Broughton's potential motive comes out in the reports, however. The RCMP were attempting to find out if Broughton was a homosexual. The RCMP reports indicate that the investigators were looking into the possibility that Broughton may have had a love affair with another man, one that had recently ended. Now, while today this would make for a ludicrous motive for a terrible crime, in the mid-1960s we have to remember that homosexuality was already considered a crime. In fact, one of the reports stated, and I quote, We are exploring the possibility that there was a homosexual love affair. If this love affair had broken off recently, it is known that homosexuals become very despondent when this occurs. 
The RCMP of the mid-1960s believed that homosexuals were not just social deviants, but also criminals, and thus a criminal act could be associated with someone found to be gay. Effectively, being homosexual in the 1960s made you automatically suspicious in the eyes of the RCMP. This is a fascinating aspect of the investigation into Broughton, because, as the CBC later reported, the lead investigator, a guy named Cy Leland, told his own son that he believed Broughton to be the most likely suspect. While the evidence, in this historian's opinion at least, is weak, it speaks uncomfortably to a very real prejudice within Canadian society and Canadian law enforcement at the time towards gay men. The final suspect, and perhaps the person that will trigger the most debate, is Paul van der Meulen. Van der Meulen was an American who had moved to B.C. only weeks before the tragic flight. He was married and a father of four girls, two from a first failed marriage and two more from his then second wife. He had spent time in the military. He had worked a variety of jobs, including being a private detective. And in 1965, he was a partner in a prospecting company known as Bullion Mines. In fact, he was taking CP-21 to head north to the interior of British Columbia to do some prospecting. The first thing to bring van der Meulen to the attention of the authorities was the fact that his body contained copper fragments in it. This was not copper that was indigenous to the airplane, but in fact the type of copper found in blasting caps. This meant that he was, at the very least, near the detonation when it occurred. The problem was there was no assigned seating on the flight, so it's difficult to tell if he was simply sitting near the explosion or was indeed the detonation man. Interestingly, van der Meulen was carrying a couple of unusual things. First was $800 in cash, which is the equivalent of about $6,500 uh, Canadian dollars today. Though the money was never found at the scene, and it doesn't really do much to help with the investigation, it nonetheless piqued the interest of the police. He also had a 44 Magnum revolver on him during the flight which was registered with the police, I should say. Now today, we probably find this odd, a man carrying a gun on him, in particular carrying a gun on a plane. But Canadian law back then still allowed for a registered gun owner to carry a concealed weapon. The categories of non-restricted, restricted, and prohibited that we are familiar with today were not applied to firearms until 1969. Thus, Van der Meulen carrying a weapon onto a plane, while uncomfortable perhaps, was not necessarily illegal. Investigators also do not know if he was carrying it on his person or if it was in his luggage during the flight. Now, perhaps even more interesting was that van der Meulen also got red flagged over a life insurance policy, one that he took out about two months before the trip. Vanderbilen told the insurance agent he was about to go off into the wilderness and wanted to take care of his family if something should happen. 
This could also easily explain him carrying a weapon for protection from wildlife while prospecting in the rugged and wild interior of British Columbia. What is interesting about Vandermeulen is that the police learned that his insurance policy came with quite a steep premium. This premium was applied to him because of a previous head injury he had suffered years before. When police did even more digging, they found out Vandermeulen was seeing a psychiatrist for chronic anxiety and complications as a result of the head injury. When the police dug further into the psychiatrist's records, they discovered a note where the psychiatrist labeled Vandermeulen as a highly intelligent person who shows a deep madness towards the world. Furthermore, that he was, and I quote, capable of violent, irrational acts. One can imagine that that sentence in particular stood out to investigators. The gun itself poses some issues. Perhaps he was bringing it so he had a means of self-defense in the wilderness, or perhaps he brought it onto the plane for crowd control to effectively stop anyone from trying to stop him if he was indeed the bomber. Yet, why would he be carrying so much money if he planned to kill himself? And there is no evidence he knew anything about explosives or how to make a bomb. The only real motive for Vandermeulen seems to be mental illness, coupled with a deep anger at the world. His great-granddaughter from his first marriage recalls her grandmother, so one of Vandermeulen's daughters, saying that she believed he caused the crash. Though again, the evidence is not strong. And in the end, the lack of any substantial evidence meant the mystery remained unsolved. Investigators simply could not prove that any one of the four suspects was indeed the culprit. Certainly, the investigators had their own personal opinions. Anecdotes say that Broughton and Vandermeulen were the two most likely in the eyes of the investigation team. One of them had access to explosive chemicals, the other one had a potentially explosive pathological motivation. But even then, it is difficult to come to any solid conclusion. Despite renewed efforts to reopen the investigation, including a documentary, a podcast, and investigative journalism by the CBC, there is simply no smoking gun. The case remains a mystery. The person responsible is anybody's guess, despite numerous theories, and one of Canada's worst airline crimes might just never be solved. Speculation is all that is really left, and frankly, speculation has made up the history of this case. It was put to bed, then resurrected, only to be put to bed once more. And perhaps it might never come to the light of day again. Perhaps we will never know who was responsible for the destruction wrought upon the caribou that fateful day in July. A cold case with nothing but question marks left to keep it warm, nearly forgotten in the wilderness of British Columbia. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D O C B O R Y S. Thank you for tuning in. 
and stay cool. 